If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and we are bringing you a conversation with Padia Mixon and Jim Neal about building partnerships and collaborations. A wise woman once said, we are better together. And for some reason, many of us reject that notion that we're better off when we're working with others and we're working together to move something forward. And we really have a lot of obstacles in our way to actually make a partnership or a collaboration really work. And I will also share with you that in the nonprofit sector, and listeners, you know, I've been in this sector for 25 plus years at this point, we often talk about collaboration, but we rarely see them actually implemented in a way that they work. And of course, our funders talk about them a lot too. So today, we have invited two folks on who have really made a collaboration work. Padia Mixon is CEO of New American Pathways, which is an organization that serves refugees in the Atlanta region. And Jim Neal is the Director of Operations at Friends of Refugees, also in the Atlanta region. And I will share with you that they are two key players that have put together a 21 agency, that's right, 21 agency coalition that has really helped the entire region move forward on refugee and immigration issues. And so I am so very excited to welcome Padia and Jim to the podcast. Hey, welcome. Hey, thank you for having us. Thanks, Dolph. So let's just jump right in. Share with me, how did you realize that there was a need for the Coalition of Refugee Services Agencies, which is that collaboration I was just mentioning? The Coalition of Refugee Service Agencies started in 2012. It started with just six organizations. And what happened was there were, at the time, six organizations that 
each welcomed refugees into Georgia communities. We were all refugee resettlement organizations. We started to get some political backlash at the state level, some pretty significant political backlash. At the time, it, we were receiving backlash from the governor's office and also some backlash in the city of Clarkston, where lots of refugees originally settle when they come into the state. And we were coming together and trying to figure out how we were going to deal with the backlash. And one of the things that we realized was that conventional wisdom at the time was refugee organizations just kind of kept your head down. You know, you didn't get involved with politics. You didn't get involved with policy. You kind of tried to stay out of the limelight as much as you could and just did your work and moved along. And we suddenly were in a position where we didn't have connections. We didn't know the elected officials and we weren't the ones telling our story. Others were telling it for us. It was very hard for us to get the meetings we need, to make the connections we need, to really tell the story of the positive impact that refugees and immigrants were making in the state. And none of us had a budget for advocacy work or policy work. So it was really up to the group of directors to do advocacy. And if the six of us each tried to individually meet with all the people we needed and build those relationships, we didn't think we'd be successful. So we decided to come together and to share that part of our job, you know, divide and conquer. So it meant meeting with local government, it meant meeting with state government, engaging refugees in speaking up and talking about their experience and connecting them with policymakers. It meant getting stories in the media about the positive contributions and all the things that refugees were doing. So we, we split it up. And that was the origins of the CRSA. At the time, it was just resettlement agencies, but it has grown. And now we have resettlement agencies. We have other human service organizations. We have community center. We have a coffee shop. We have a school. <laughs> you know, Lots of people involved from different walks of life. But the one thing that they all have in common is, well, two things. They're all nonprofits and they all serve refugees and immigrants in some capacity. Jim, anything you want to add? Well, just I'll pick up on what Peggy is saying about the evolution of CRSA. The leadership of that coalition has rotated over the years. So I recently rotated into the, the chair role, but it has been filled by others from different organizations. So organizations are all expected to contribute to the work of CRSA, to participation in events, to participate in sharing information about the work that's done so that in that collective manner, as Peggy described, we can articulate and advocate for refugees and immigrants across the state. Our membership has become more diverse, both in terms of origin of service or areas of focus beyond refugees to other uh, immigrant groups or broader immigrant issues, as well as representing groups made up of folks from specific countries, so a, a, a you know, group from Syria, Eritrea, Somalia, these, these kinds of groups are also a part of the coalition and participate in the work of the coalition today. So at this point, the coalition is about eight years old, but I'd be willing to bet that as you were getting it started, you ran into some obstacles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the very beginning, just figuring out who we were and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it, I mean, None of us had that sort of training and background in advocacy or policy work. We were going down to the Capitol for the first time. Absolutely. And also we had to manage 
how do we speak with one voice without promoting one organization over the other? That was a big challenge in the very beginning. That's how we ended up creating a name and a brand. We have our own logo. We have our own website. We have our own you know, social media presence under CRSA so that it isn't one organization kind of promoting itself over the others. I mean, we're all competing against each other for funding and other things. So being able to create that brand. And another big challenge we had was messaging in that sometimes in a human service nonprofit, there's messaging that an organization might use to attract donors that might not uplift the community that you're serving. So we really wanted to tell the story of the positive contributions of refugees and immigrants. And we really wanted all of our message to be strength-based and to be focused on contributions. And so getting a common messaging platform and getting people to sign on to the idea of not only will you use this common messaging platform when you're doing CRSA work, but your organization is expected to use strengths-based messaging all the time as a member that was something really tricky in the beginning, but now it's not really an issue. I think people have really bought onto that. But in the beginning, getting our messaging, getting our identity out there, figuring out what works and what doesn't work, building those relationships, those were all things that you know were really tough in the beginning. Hey, I really need to dig into that a little bit further on positive messaging. Can you give us some examples? Certainly. You know, refugees are typically individuals who've had to flee their country and they've been through really terrible things. You can certainly tell those stories, kind of terrible stories, and they'll garner a lot of sympathy and empathy, but they do not define who refugees are. You, you shouldn't be defined by the worst thing that ever happened to you. You are not defined by the worst pain you've ever experienced. And so And we're talking about refugees that have rebuilt their lives in Georgia. So we have people with incredible education and experience that they bring to Georgia's communities. And we really want to focus on that that story, the story of building a new life and a new place, the story of the contributions you bring, rather than really focusing on the tragedy and the potential needs that somebody might have, you know, just really focusing on telling that story of the refugees' new life in Georgia and not really dwelling on the worst things that ever happened to them. I also find it interesting that participating in this coalition essentially means you have to agree that you're going to use positive strength-based messaging when you talk about clients. Are there other types of requirements for participating? Well, the main requirement for participating is, is to participate. The dues are relatively small and and for ethnically led organizations are often waived. But the requirement, strength-based messaging is is the cultural, this is the way we do things requirement. And then how we do things has a strong roll up your sleeves and pitch in requirement. So there are expectations of participating in different roles in some of the events that the coalition does. Beyond that, and providing data, as I mentioned earlier, sharing information that we can aggregate, very much leveraging personal stories of contributions, but also that aggregation of data helps us talk about economic impact and the value that the organizations bring, but certainly, more importantly, the value that refugees and immigrants are bringing to the community. 
I've sometimes found that it's that data sharing that kind of becomes a sticking point for some organizations. Has that been an issue at all with the coalition early on or even now? One of the first things that we had to figure out, I mean, when we were all refugee resettlement agencies, we were all required to keep the same kind of data. So that was pretty simple. When we opened up to larger communities, we found that a lot of the questions we were asking wasn't necessarily data people collect. And also, you know, we have organizations that have an eight or $9 million annual budget and organizations that have annual budgets that are a few hundred thousand dollars or less. So the ability to keep data and produce it on demand is another issue that came up. One of the things we do now is we do a, a Google survey and try to simplify the questions and have whole sections to say, if you're not a resettlement agency, skip to number 10, you know, <laughs> a lot of things that definitely don't apply to everyone. And then we also have some of the bigger organizations have offered um, staff to come over and help other organizations with the data, talking through it or helping them go through things because some people may keep things in a notebook. This the larger organization is going to send over an intern or a staff person to count with you so that we can get this data in. And that's kind of some of the ways that we've overcome the fact that we're not all the same in the kinds of data that we keep. And then we also have a, a place where you can just share stories. And so sometimes there'll be an organization that will, like a coffee shop is not going to have the same kind of data as the rest of us, but they're going to have great stories. And so that gives you an opportunity if you don't have data, but you can share these great stories and photos and they make their way into our annual report as well. What I think I'm hearing out of this is there's a real commitment from all 21 members of the coalition that they're going to work together to meet the needs and the goals of the coalition. Like, for example, when the larger organization says, we'll send someone over to help count those files with you. Like, that's an incredible offer that you don't usually see happen between organizations. I think there's a cultural aspect of how the coalition works today that's reflected in in some of the values and the approaches of the founders, if you will. I, I came into this work, you know, only a couple of years after the coalition was started. And in from the my first encounters as a volunteer and doing things in, involved with coalition organizations, I was struck by how much it already sort of felt as a, this is the way we do things kind of approach, you know. And so I, I give a lot of credit to those who started it, and then had the willingness to open it up. You know, it would have been easy to keep it, as I can imagine, a refugee resettlement agency coalition. But for larger purposes, that group was willing to make adjustments and, and open it up and, and be sponsors of these kinds of values or this approach that, that yes, sure, we will help you out. And I just want to add two other things about that culture. I think that one thing is the stakes are really high. They were really high in 2011. They're even higher now. Over the past four years, a third of our refugee resettlement partners across the country have closed their doors. The refugee program is under threat. The people that are waiting in refugee camps to come to the United States, we are their key. You know, we are their advocate. Refugees who are already here have a voice. And part of our role is to make sure that they know that they have a voice and that they know how and who to talk to. But those refugees that are stuck in really bad situations, we are their voice. And 
the opportunity to come to the United States isn't a guarantee. And so coming together is the only way that we can really be good advocates. And we have to be good advocates for the survival of this program and for the life-saving work that it does. So I really do think that one of the reasons why we work really well together is we all see that we live and die together in that sense. The other thing is my partners, um, J.D. McCrary at the International Rescue Committee, he always said when we started this coalition that um, we were standing on the shoulders of giants. So there was a group of um, a group of women that ran the six resettlement agencies before us who started the practice of meeting regularly and working collaboratively on issues. They didn't have a coalition. But they did come and say, hey, we're having a problem with this. Are you having the same problem? Maybe if we come in together. And so that culture was already there so that when the second generation or probably third or fourth generation of refugee resettlement directors were there, we already had that practice. So I think for a lot of people, you know, that will say, you know, when we go and talk about our coalition work and coalition building, we didn't build it out of nothing. And so I think a lot of people will say, you know, oh, I don't think we could ever do that. And what I would say to them is, well, what can you do? You know, because you may be planting the seeds for something huge in the future. How can you come together? If it's small, that's okay. Just what can you do? Right. I want to go back just a couple minutes and I need to reflect on something. This is incredibly personal. And well, you know, when you have a podcast, sometimes you just get to say things that are incredibly, incredibly personal. And you talked about the fact that a third of refugee resettlement agencies around the country have closed over the last four years. And I just have to reflect how much that that pains me. My father came here as a refugee in 1961 from a country that for the last four years, our nation has refused to allow anyone to come here from. And so I just, literally when you said that, I just, I felt pain in my heart. And I just had this moment when, Listeners were recording this in October of 2020 when I thought, I really hope in January we do what we're supposed to be doing, which is let people into this country who otherwise face real, real grave danger to their lives and their well-being. So I'm sorry. I, it, intensely personal, but I had to reflect that. <laughs> um, so let me ask you, Obviously, you all are collecting data. You've been an operating coalition for, gosh, eight years now. How do you define your success? One aspect, and maybe how that definition of success is evolving, is it would be completely fair and a great success if bad things didn't happen at the Georgia legislature. Full stop. And the predecessors, and it still continues to some, but to a lesser, have had to fight, and that has been the victory. Bad things did not happen. Success now, I think, is something we think of in terms of how are we enabling good things to happen? How are we enabling and, and elevating these stories of refugees and immigrants? Leveraging a history of credibility, a history of presence to enlist allies in government and in other groups to advocate for positive things for the, the communities. Those would be counted as our successes as a coalition. So we are starting new initiatives to try to be very deliberate in 
expanding partnerships in the business community and reaching across uh, on issues of everything from worker safety in light of COVID-19 to opportunities for foreign-born Americans to get into the economy more effectively and, and to bring their gifts and talents uh, into different sectors of the economy. We've spent a good bit of time highlighting the economic contributions of refugees and immigrants here in Georgia. They're real, they're credible. We can, I could cite the statistics for you. And yet we also know that in our landscape, that is an important part of vocabulary of educating and bringing other people alongside you, is to talk the language of business, as we say down here. And so that's been a part of what we do too. A third of Main Street businesses in Georgia are owned by foreign-born people. Uh, one in seven workers was born in another country. And so highlighting those contributions and talking with people who care about some of the economic aspects and unleashing that potential is an important part of this idea of how do we build and help enable good things to happen. I love the fact that you can cite stats like one in three businesses in Main Street, Georgia, is owned by someone who is a new American, or the one in seven of the workforce is also a new American. That is such an incredible stat to be able to cite because it really humanizes it, but it also makes it really clear that they're our neighbors and they work with us. I love that. It's been an interesting part as someone who's come on to the scene more recently in this, coming into this sort of transition from constantly playing defense and looking for allies who can help you stop something to being vigilant and also how can we start to look for allies who can enable good things to happen and i don't know that we have that all sussed out yet we have a lot of things that we're working on and we're exploring to try to bring that to bring that to life Absolutely. Listeners, I just need to let you know, I think we may have lost Padia. Her computer made a noise and then she dropped off the call. But the good news is we were rapidly reaching that point where we we're going to move to the off the map question. I do hope Padia is able to get back in. I'm, I'm actually monitoring the doorway to our Zoom call now so that if I see her, I can let her back in. So Jim, we always ask an off the map question and it gives our listeners a chance to get to know you. And I understand that you do a type of singing that many of our listeners might not have heard of. Yes, and I, um, I participate in uh, something called sacred harp singing, which is a form of shape note singing. That form of music is actually the oldest American music started uh, in the late 18th century up in New England to help equip communities to sing together and by learning shape note methods. And that tradition flourished, then almost went away and has been enjoying a second resurgence globally. And it is remarkably stress relieving and encouraging to get in a room with a bunch of really friendly people and sing to each other in full voice. It's not a performance, it is a collaborative community effort. And so, I participate in that not because I have any great musical talent or whatever. I participate in it because the community welcomes me and because you can create something beautiful. It's temporal. The sound stops when you finish singing, but you can do that together. And so it's, I found it to be a real um, encouragement and, and, and a lot of fun uh, to do that singing. 
That's really awesome. And I've got to just sort of ask, I know you said it's uh, temporal. And so when you stop singing, it goes away. Are there any YouTube videos of it? Oh, believe me. Yes, there's lots of YouTube. There's lots of places to find just sacredharp.org or just Google, you know, Sacred Harp singing and you'll find lots of great opportunities. Uh, and, and ranging from rural Georgia to to Ireland, to Japan, to Canada, you'll, you'll find people singing this music. That's awesome, Jim. And if you want to send me um, a link to a video of one, we will also put that in our show notes. So that's really awesome. Padia, I am so glad you were able to get back in. I shared with listeners that I think there was a computer glitch and you got dropped from the Zoom, but I'm so thrilled you're in and we're doing the off the map question. And someone told me, and by the way, this is not something that you shared in the pre-survey. So now I'm like, oh yeah, now, now it's going to be a good one. Someone shared with me that you, more than probably anyone else in Atlanta, are all about 90s music. So my question for you is, if you could only listen to one 90s band, which ever again, you could listen to other radio, you know, stuff that came out in the noughts and stuff that came out in the 80s, but only one 90s band, what would that one 90s band be? That's a really hard question. Um, I think it would be the Pixies. Yeah, I think it would be the Pixies. That, that's probably if I listened to one, which would be really hard, but it would be the Pixies, I think. And do you have a favorite song? Um, Gigantic is my favorite Pixies song, um, but Doolittle's my favorite album, so. Uh, awesome, awesome. Well, we, we may find Gigantic by the Pixies on YouTube and link that <laughs> in our show notes as well. And Padia, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. You are both doing essential, life-saving work in Georgia, and I am so incredibly grateful for the work that you are doing. And listeners, if you want to know more about the Coalition of Refugee Service Agencies, go to crsageorgia.wordpress.com. And there you can see all of the work they're doing, the action alerts that they're putting out, the essentially, as Jim said, part of how they measure their success is the bad things that they stop from happening. And you can see that type of work and hopefully it will inspire you. Whether you work with refugees or some other community, it will inspire you in ways that you can create a coalition that moves your cause forward. I would also be remiss if I did not suggest that you visit each of their websites. Jim's organization is Friends of Refugees, which you can find at friendsofrefugees.com, not .org, dear listeners, .com. And Pahadia's organization is New American Pathways, also a really simple URL, newamericanpathways.org. So make sure you check out all three of those URLs. And Pahadia, Jim, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, listeners, let me just say, if you were busy on YouTube looking up the Pixies or looking up sacred harp singing, no worries. You can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and get the links from today's show. And there's actually a lot of them that we have mentioned. So you're going to see a ton of links there this time, in addition to the one, the link to Coalition of Refugee Service Agencies. 
And listeners, you know, I always ask that you rate and review the podcast. There's something else that I'd like to ask that you do, and that is subscribe to our email list. We only send out emails once a week, never, ever more than once. And I will share with you, it is chock full of great information about all of the things we are working on. So go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and subscribe to our email list. That, dear listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. Of course, my quick reminder, I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show, obviously, is not intended to provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. In fact, if you find yourself in need of that, you know, this should really come as no surprise to you. I would suggest that you find a licensed professional and have a conversation with them.